Well, who's ready to open up God's word together this morning? Take it open to the book of Exodus and chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning. While you're turning there, I wanna introduce a couple of very dear friends uh, to our family, and that's Jeff and Debbie Jackson, who are sitting right here in the second row. Just wave your hands. And can we give them a warm, moberly welcome? Debbie was on the pastor search committee that called me and brought me to Paramount Baptist Church in Amarillo a number of years ago. And uh, since then, Jeff and Debbie have just become very close and trusted friends of ours, prayer partners, and just people who we always knew had our backs, had our, in our corner, and uh, praying for us and loved us. And we're just so grateful for the two of you and so glad that y'all are here worshiping with us uh, today. Well, hopefully you found your way to Exodus chapter 20. You know, when you take a a class in college, uh, one of the first things that you receive on the first day of class is a syllabus. And the syllabus uh, tells you the purpose uh, for the class, the reason the class exists, what assignments are going to be required, when the assignments are due. And then a good syllabus will tell you on what basis you will be graded. And uh, syllabus essentially states the expectations that the professor has for the class and for the students. Now, college students will tell me all the time that the worst classes to take in college are when the expectations aren't clear and you feel like you're being judged or graded against an unknown, unstated, or unclear standard. And good parenting functions the same way. A good parent will make the expectations clear for their children. They'll make the boundaries known for where the children can play, where the children can't play, what time the kids need to come home at night from playing. For me, and maybe some of you will remember this, for me it was whenever the street lights went on. Anybody else? Street lights go on, it's time to, to ride your bicycle back to the house. And uh, some of those expectations and some of those boundaries may feel <clears throat> restrictive from the children's perspective at times, but, but we all know that those boundaries are actually designed to help your children flourish. They're designed for your children's good. It's a cruel parent who, who doesn't ever state the boundary, but then will just explode in anger whenever a child crosses, crosses that unknown standard because the expectation wasn't stated. You know, a lot of people, I think, really believe that God is that way, that the God is sort of like that uh, cruel parent or cruel professor who holds us to an invisible standard or expectation, and then just kind of waits for us to mess up when he can bring the hammer down on us and, you know, rain down some fire and brimstone. And some people wonder, you know, uh, is, is that the way God is? Is that, is that his nature? Is that his character? That he's just waiting for me to mess up? And I, I'm not really sure what his expectations are for my life, but I just know that if I cross some invisible line that God's going to come down and get me. <laughs> well, the God of the Bible is nothing like that. Amen. Nothing like that at all. No, God has clearly communicated the the expectations that he has for our lives, the syllabus, if you will, for the course of life that tells us exactly what he expects of us, the the boundaries that he's ordained for us, the guidelines that we're to live by if we want want, want life to work best. You might, might ask, well, where do we find those boundaries, those guidelines, that instruction? Well, of course, the Christian would say it's all of God's word, amen? But I want to focus on the next 10 weeks specifically the Ten Commandments in the Bible, because this is how God shows us how life works best. Now, you may be wondering, Pastor, why would we 
study the Ten Commandments. In fact, when I first announced that we would be doing a series in the Ten Commandments, someone came up to me and said, Pastor, why are we, uh, why are we looking at the old, uh, the, the old Testament, the law, the Ten Commandments? Aren't we under grace? I mean, is the, are the Ten Commandments for Christians? Isn't the law bad and grace good, right? The Old Testament shows us the God of judgment, but we're New Testament Christians. We live under the God of grace, right? Some popular Bible teachers even will say that we need to, quote, unhitch from the Old Testament. So it's kind of become out of vogue to even consider that the Ten Commandments might be for our lives. Well, that's not the Bible's view. I want you to consider the Bible's view of the Ten Commandments, the Bible's view of, of the law of God. There are a lot of places I could uh, show you here, but just for the sake of time, I want to read one passage from uh, Psalm 19 that will show you what the Bible has to say about the law of God. Listen to Psalm 19 and verse 7. It says, the instruction of the Lord, literally the Torah of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now, what does the law do? Say it with me. Renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord, that's a synonym for instruction. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. What does it do? It makes the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances, again, another synonym for law. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. Let's say this together. They are more desirable than thin gold. You see, there's a value that the Bible is associating with the, with the law of God. They are sweeter than honeycomb dripping from, a, uh, from, sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. And in addition, your servant is warned by them. And in keeping them, there is what? An abundant reward, right? So the Bible's view of the Ten Commandments is that they, they are good. They are for our good. How about Jesus's view? What did Jesus have to say about the law? Well, consider the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5. Listen to these words, uh, beginning in verse 17. Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish or do away with the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called what? Great in the kingdom of heaven. So the Bible's view of the law is that the law is good. Jesus' view of the law is that the law is good. How about the church's view historically? Well, if you look over the last 2,000 years of church history, for many centuries, the discipleship manuals that the church has used, the, the historic church, has incorporated the Ten Commandments as a means of discipleship for Christians. In fact, uh, if you look across the centuries and in all forms of Christian life, uh, the church has used something called catechisms. You know, you, the catacombs, no, it's not catacombs, catechisms. To catechize means to instruct. And the church historically has used catechisms as a, a means of instructing new believers. It's, think of it as a discipleship manual. And the historic catechisms of the church have always incorporated three elements. They have used to instruct new believers. They've used the Apostles' Creed. They've used the Lord's Prayer. And they've used the Ten Commandments. And so the, historically, the church has viewed the Ten Commandments as actually vital to our formation as Christian disciples. 
So I would say that the Ten Commandments is very relevant. The Bible says it's relevant. Jesus says it's relevant. The church historically has viewed the Ten Commandments as relevant to our formation as followers of Jesus. So if it's true that the Ten Commandments matter today and they for our lives, it's relevant to us, well, then how should we read them? How should we understand them? In other words, how do we relate as New, as, as, uh, New Testament believers, right, as Christians, as followers of Jesus? How do we relate to the Ten Commandments? Well, I want to, wait, I want to teach you three ways to view the law, okay? And I'm going to reiterate this over the next 10 weeks, so I want you to memorize it. Maybe some of you will get a tattoo with this or something like that, but, but just three purposes. And there are many purposes of the law, but I just want to give you three of them, okay? Here's the first one. The law is meant to show us God's design. Let's say that together. God's design. The law of God shows us actually what God is like what matters to him, what his character is like. For instance, the law tells us not to bear false witness. Why, why is that in the law? Well, because God is the God of truth. He is the truth. He speaks the truth. He wants us to live truthful lives. So why do we have a commandment about truth, uh, truthfulness? Well, because it tells us about God's nature and his character. But not only does it tell us about God's nature and his character, it actually tells us about God's design for our lives. The theme of this series is flourish. God wants you to flourish. He wants you to thrive. And God's law shows us how to flourish as human beings. His law shows us how life works best. Moms and dads in the room, true or false, life in your house works best when your children honor their father and mother. Is that true or false? Okay, for those of you who are in business, business works best when people do not steal. True or false? Married couples in the house. Marriage works best when husband and wife are faithful to the marriage covenant and don't commit adultery. True or false? True, right? So the law shows us a design for life, how life works best so that we can flourish. So it's meant to show us God's design. Number two, it is also meant to be a sign that points us to our need for Christ. Can we say that together? It's meant to be a sign that points us to our need for Christ. Here, here's the reality. The moment that you begin to look at the law of God, which is perfect and it's reliable and it's good and it reveals his character, the moment that you look, if you think about the law of God as being a mirror, if you look and see your own reflection, you'll realize that the reflection is broken. In other words, none of us can keep God's law. And in fact, all of us have broken God's law. We are all lawless. And our lawlessness is what separates us from God. And so the moment that you hold up the perfect standard of the law of God, you begin to realize your own sinfulness, which points you to a need for someone to deliver you, to save you from your lawlessness and the consequences of your sin. And so the law stands like a road sign that points you forward to Jesus. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 3.24, that the law is a schoolmaster, a teacher, a tutor that leads you to Christ. So when you look at the law, you see God's design for our life. You're also confronted with the fact we don't live out that design very well, do we? We sin, we rebel, we're lawless. And so we need someone who perfectly obeyed the law of God for us so that we can be accepted by God and made new and that we can actually be redeemed and delivered from our lawfulness. And you may say, Pastor, well, look, I'm a very moral person. Well, here's the truth. It, you know, you might be moral in comparison to other humans, right? Maybe you say, Pastor, I'm, I'm upstanding. I'm, I pay my taxes. I vote, you know, the right way. 
and I'm a, a good neighbor, and uh, I'm a moral person. Well, well, compared to, you know, an inmate on death row, you might be a fairly moral person, but when you compare yourself to the perfect law of God, you realize that no, no matter how moral you might be, you are still, you've fallen short of the glory of God, to use the language of Romans. All right, so if you've ever seen it, like a sheep out on a, a pasture, that sheep against the backdrop of that green grass, that sheep looks very clean, white fur and all this kind of thing. But if you take that same sheep and put it against the backdrop of freshly fallen snow, you realize that sheep is not clean at all. The sheep is very dirty. If you compare yourself to someone else, you might say, well, I'm a very moral person. I'm very pure. I'm very clean. But if you compare yourself to the perfect law of God, you realize, no, I am sinful. I'm broken. I have failed to keep the law. Right? How many of you would be willing to admit, like, I've told a lie before. Anybody be willing to admit? Now, if your hand is not up, you're lying right now. <laughs> Right? So we've, right, we've, we've all stolen. We've, we've not always honored our father and mother. We've not always put God first. So, so the law points us, it's, it functions as a signpost to point both to our need for Christ, but here's the good news, the provision of Christ. Right? The law points us to the law keeper, the one who perfectly embodied the law of God and who can deliver us from our lawlessness. So the law is meant to show us God's design. It's also meant to be a sign that points us forward to our need for Christ. Now listen, once you come to know Jesus and he delivers you from your sin, he forgives you, he makes you new, he puts his Holy Spirit in you. Now the law has a third function and that's this, the law is meant to refine us, to make us look more like Christ. You see, once you have been saved, once you've been made new by Christ, now you read the Ten Commandments with fresh eyes. You put on like a different lens when you look through and you realize that the, the Ten Commandments is a roadmap toward holiness. It is not a road towards your justification. You cannot be justified by your obedience to the law, but it is a road to your sanctification. You are justified through faith in the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. But once you've been justified by faith, then the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life to make you look more and more like Christ. That's the process we call sanctification. And then when you read the Ten Commandments, you actually see this is how God begins to refine us to look more and more like Christ. You know, if you want to see what the Ten Commandments looks like in flesh and blood, look at Jesus. Because he perfectly kept the law. If you want to see the embodiment of the Ten Commandments, look at Jesus. And as you begin to obey, as a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered believer, as you begin to obey the Ten Commandments, God uses that to refine and to shape you to look more and more like God's Son. And so as a Christian believer, when we read the Ten Commandments, we actually look at this as a, a means of sanctification, a means by which God makes us more and more holy. God looks at our lives and we're like a, a block of marble. And God's purpose for us is not just to justify us, but also to sanctify us, to make us look like Christ and ultimately to glorify us. And he does that by chipping away at all of the things in our life that doesn't look like Jesus so that we can be a sculpture that looks just like Christ. And the Ten Commandments is one of the means through which God does that. So three purposes, it's meant to be meant to show us God's design. It's meant to be a sign that points us forward to our need for Christ. But then once you're a believer, it's meant to 
refine to make us look more and more like Christ. Everybody with me on the, on the same page so far? All right, all of that was free, okay? That was just the introduction, all right? So you ready to jump in? Okay. Well, there's a way to read these as 10 individual commandments, right? Because there are 10 commands. But there's also a way to summarize the 10 commandments under two headings. And in fact, Jesus did this himself. You can take all of those 10 commandments and you can put it under one of two headings. The heading, love God, and the heading, love your neighbor. You remember when Jesus was asked about the most important command of the law, uh, in the, in the most important command, it's gonna, the words are gonna come, folks. They're gonna come. <laughs> the most important command, you remember Jesus was asked about this in Mark 12, and he said, the first one is this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay, commandments one through four have to do with how we love God. And then he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments five through 10 have to do with how we love our neighbor. So you can think about it as 10 individual commands. You can think about it as two tables of laws, right? Two, two headings, love God and love neighbor. But there's actually a way to read the 10 commandments as 10 ways of describing one main command. In fact, Martin Luther said that's how we should read the 10 commandments. He said that the first commandment is really the summation of the entire 10. And that commandments two through 10 are really just an expansion and an explanation of what it looks like to live out commandment number one. So if you really, in other words, if you really grasp the first command and you understand it in its implications, you're really gonna grasp the whole. Does that make sense to everybody? So that's what we're gonna look at today. Commandment number one, God above all. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20. I'm gonna read verses one through three, and we're just gonna look briefly at this text. It says, then God spoke all these words. And I want you to notice verse two. This is a preface to the law. Before he gives any command, he is going to ground what he's gonna say. He's gonna give a basis for what he's gonna say in who he is. Verse two, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Okay, so if you think about <clears throat> all of the commandments as describing what we are to do, that's verses three and following. Verse two is about who we are to obey. In other words, before God commands anything, he's gonna give us a statement of who he is. Uh, he, he's gonna tell you what his nature is like. Some of you may be wondering, well, what qualifies God to tell me how to live my life? Well, that's what he begins with in verse two. He's actually gonna say, this is who I am. If you wanna know who is the God who's giving you these commands, who's the God who's sharing his design for your life, let me show you who I am. Let me give you my qualifications that, that qualifies me to lay out the expectation for your life. And so I want you just to notice, first of all, we are introduced to God as our ruler. God as our ruler. He says, I am the Lord, your God. Every word in that statement matters. I am the Lord, your God. He actually uses the word for Lord there. It's the word Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. He, in other words, he's saying, I am Yahweh, your God. 
what does Yahweh mean? Well, Yahweh literally means this, I am. I am. In many places in the Bible, God will identify himself this way. Jesus identified himself this way. That's why, like, the religious leaders wanted to murder him, because he was claiming to be God. He was appropriating the covenant name of God for himself. He said, I am. You'll read sometimes it's translated, I am who I am. Or sometimes, I will be who I will be. If you want to know who's speaking to you, when this God gives you 10 commands, you need to realize he is the one who calls himself I am. Now, what does it mean to be I am? That's kind of an unusual way of identifying yourself. Well, it means a couple things. Number one, it refers to the fact that God is complete in and of himself. I am. He just exists. He is the only being in the entire universe that doesn't need anything else to exist. You need, you're a dependent being, right? You need other people to exist. From, from the moment you're born, you are dependent on, on environment, on people, on food, on water, and all these things to exist. God doesn't need any of that to exist. He just is. He is the perfectly self-existent one. He is complete in and of himself. Okay, so that's the first thing that we know about this God. He has everything that he needs in himself, which, by the way, makes his love for us all the more incredible because he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's perfectly happy just by himself, right? The children's story Bibles that say, why does God create Adam and Eve? Well, because he's lonely. That's bad theology. God wasn't lonely. God lived in perfect community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect fellowship within the Godhead before time even began. God is completely self-existent. He is complete in and of himself. And so when you hear the word from him, you realize he's supreme. He is above. He is better than us. He is different than us. He's complete in and of himself. The second thing that this word, I am, means, it means that he is constant. You can literally translate this, I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. In other words, the God of tomorrow is the same God he is today. The God who's the God today is the same God he was yesterday. Hebrews 13, 8 puts it this way. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, what? Today and forever. Isn't that good news in a changing world? So many things in our life change. Change is constant. It just, everything is always shifting and changing all around us all the time. But you know, God never changes. He's constant. His character, who he was for you yesterday, he'll be for you today. Who he is for you today, he'll be for you tomorrow. You can always depend on him. His character and his nature is perfect. It is, it is constant. I love the way that one writer said this about Israel. He said, listen, God, God was saying to Israel as they're receiving his law, I will always be for you, Israel, exactly what you need. And I will always do for you, Israel, exactly what you need done. That's what it means for him to be Yahweh, the one who is I am, who I am what I am, I will be what I will be. Maybe some of you just need to hear that word today. That God will be for you. He will always be for you exactly what you need him to be. And he will always do for you exactly what you need for him to do. What qualifies him to give us commands? Well, he's complete in and of himself. He's constant in his nature, but also he is the creator. I want you to notice He says, I am Yahweh, your God. Now, God just means the supreme authority. That's what God is, the supreme authority, the supreme ruler. Literally, what he's saying is, I am Yahweh, your 
ruler. I am Yahweh, your God. I am Yahweh, your authority. And the word that he uses here for God is different than the word Yahweh. He uses two names. He says, I am Yahweh, your Elohim. Elohim is actually the first name that you read about that's describing God in the Bible. First time you read about Elohim is in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So not only is he complete in and of himself, not only is he constant in his character, he is also the creator of the universe. You say, what qualifies God to tell me how to live my life? Because he made you. And what you make, you have authority over. Amen? Parents in the room? Can I get a witness? Right? Like you make a child, you get authority over that child. Amen? God made you. That's what it means for him to be Elohim. He is the creator God, the one who rules over all, the one who's the the supreme authority. So in other words, he has the right to command us because of who he is. He is God, our ruler. But, but let's, think about, let's think about the character of our ruler. Now, notice the second thing. We're told that he's our ruler, but, but we also see God as our redeemer. Look at verse 2. I am Yahweh, your ruler. I am the Lord, your God, who what? Brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. You see, God is the God who delivers us from slavery. And I think it's fascinating that God, as he, before he gives any command, he's saying, you want to know who's speaking to you here? I'm the God who is complete in and of himself. I'm the God who's constant in my character. I'm the God who created you. But if you want to know what kind of God we have, I am the God who brings you out of slavery. I am a God who redeems you from Egypt. I am the God who delivers you from bondage and oppression. I love uh, what Calvin says about this passage. He says that God doesn't want to drag people into obedience, but to allure them. And so he shares his nature. In other words, before God gives 10 commands, he's not wanting to drag you into obedience like a, a child that doesn't want to obey their parents. He wants to allure you by showing you his beauty. Now, you say, what does allure mean? When I think of allure, I think of romance. I think of what I had to do to get Amy to go out with me. I had to allure her. Another word for this is the Hebrew word. It's the word woo. Can we say that together? <laughs> woo. I had to woo her, right, through roses and chocolates and awesome date nights and batting my eyelashes her, at her. I was, I was alluring her. I was wooing her. And it worked. <laughs> now, all right, you can clap for that. Yeah, romance. This is what God is doing with Israel. He's saying, I want you to obey me, but I want you to be allured by my beauty. I want you to understand my character and my nature, that I'm, I'm a ruler. But listen, God is a gracious ruler. He's not a severe taskmaster. He's not like that cruel parent or cruel professor. He is a redeemer God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. Even in the Old Testament, listen, it's, it's a terrible division to say the Old Testament is the God of judgment. The New Testament is the God of grace. Listen, he's always the God of grace from beginning to end. And, and we're saved, by the way, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, saved the same way, by grace, through faith. You're never saved 
based on your obedience to God. You're never accepted by God based on, the, on, on your obedience to God, right? The, the law is a sign. It points us to our need for Christ. We, we aren't keepers of the law. He's the God who brings us out. He is the God who delivers us. And notice deliverance comes before obedience. Let, let me give you a brilliant insight. Okay, you gotta go to seminary for this kind of thing. <laughs> Exodus 20 comes after Exodus 19. Does that blow your mind? Exodus 19 is all about God delivering his people and establishing a covenant relationship with him. And then you get to Exodus 20, which is where God says, okay, now this is how I want you to live. This is how you're going to flourish. Pastor Jeffrey put it so well last week where he said that God's commands flow from God's covenant. You see, God begins by establishing a gracious covenant relationship through his gracious work forming a people, and then he calls us into obedience, and it works the same way in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, this tells us a couple of different things. Number one, you, you can't live out the Ten Commandments until you have experienced God's redemption. It's impossible. But also, you don't obey God's commands in order to be accepted by God, but because you have been accepted by God. You see, there's a big difference between that. One is to say that if I do good, God will love me. And that's something like deep-seated in the human heart. If I'm a good person, then God will love me. So I'm gonna work really hard to be good, not be bad, so that God will love me. That's not the Bible's message. The gospel is that there's nothing you can do to be good. And yet God loves you. And we are accepted by his grace, therefore we obey. We don't obey in order to be accepted. Do you understand the difference between those two? In other words, obedience evidences our adoption. It does not earn our adoption. If you think about it being adopted into a human family, once you're adopted, you're, you belong to the family. Okay, but then there's, there's some house rules that you learn because you want to evidence the fact that you're part of this new adopted family. You're not earning your adoption. You've already been adopted. Nothing can change that relationship. But now you're gonna evidence your adoption by living out the house rules, right? It's the same in our adoption with God. There's nothing that can change our covenant relationship, our acceptance from God. But now that we've been adopted by him, we evidence that adoption through our obedience. Dallas Willard put it so well. He says, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. God doesn't call us to earn our relationship with him, but simply to evidence it. And so we see here in the, the text that God gives us his covenant before he gives us his commands. He has the right to command us. The nature of his command is a nature of grace. I am the God who brings you out. He's not a severe taskmaster. He's a gracious deliverer. And because he is our ruler, who's completed himself and constant, the one who created us, and because he's our redeemer, he gets to command us. So let's see the final thing this morning, and that is because he's our ruler and because he's our redeemer, he is also the God who calls for a response. And we see that in verse three. Okay, verse two is who God is. Uh, it's verse two. Verse three is how we respond to who God is. If he is the one who is I am, Yahweh your ruler, who brought you out, that's who he is, then the only natural logical response is verse three which says, do not have other gods beside me. In other words, I'm the one who made you. 
I'm the one who rules over you. I'm the one who's delivered you out of slavery. Therefore, what other God would you put in my place? Isn't that the natural, logical response? This is the God who is our ruler and our redeemer who calls us to respond by loving and serving him only and above all else. And this is how God is is going to begin to form his people, to refine them, right? If you want to flourish, this is how. So let me just ask three quick questions and then we're done. What does this mean? Why is this command given? And then how do we live it out? Number one, what does this command mean? Well, let me just give you three simple words. Write this down. The command to have no other gods besides him means simply this, God above all. Let's say that together. God above all. That's what the command means. It means he has first place in our lives. Nothing is higher. Nothing is before him. Nothing is besides him. Nothing is above him. God is above all. If you want to flourish in your life, this is how. You see, God had brought his people out of Egypt, but now he needs to get Egypt out of his people. And the way that he's going to get Egypt out of his people is by saying, Love me above all else. Um, Amy and I lived in New Mexico for a number of years uh, in the foreign mission field out there until Debbie Jackson and the pastor search committee brought me to West Texas, which was like the promised land, right? That's, that's the metaphor, right? Um, anybody remember the, the uh, great drought of Bluebell ice cream that happened a few years ago. Anybody remember that? When Bluebell ice cream, the factory shut down because they had like Listeria and stuff like that and it shut down. That was a terrible day. And then it took a while, right? Because the Bluebell's the best. Amen? Can I get a witness to that? Bluebell's the best. And it took a little while for the, the operations to begin to get up, for them to begin to distribute, you know, gallons of Bluebell. And, and they had a staged plan, right? So we're gonna get Bluebell out to like this area of the country and then this area of the country and then this area of the country. You know, the very last area of the country that Bluebell was gonna be shipped to was New Mexico which tells you how far out that was. But it came to Lubbock, Texas, uh, early. And now Lubbock was about two hours from the West Texas border, right where we lived, Hobbs, New Mexico. You know what our family did on one Friday? We, we jumped into the Suburban, and we drove two hours from Hobbs, New Mexico to Lubbock, Texas for one purpose, and that was to get all the bluebell we could get and fit in that Suburban and bring back home. So a four-hour round trip to go get some bluebell ice cream. Why? Because you can take the Texans out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the Texans. Amen? Here, Israel has been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt's still in Israel. And so God wants to get Egypt out of them. So he says... The way I'm going to do that is by calling you to worship me above all. I love Peter Lightheart says they, they had undergone an exodus, and now they were to live as an exodus people. If the Lord is God, the kind of God who delivers from slavery, then truly there's no other God beside him. And yet we often worship and elevate other gods. You say, Pastor, well, I don't have little graven images in my house, some of you might have them, but most of you probably don't have those. But the truth is we all tend to elevate other things to the place of ultimate worth in our life. J.I. Packer said that your God is what you love, seek, worship, serve, and allow to control you. Now, if that's what God is in our life, then boy, we realize it's very easy to put other things into that place, serving as functional gods, we actually become what Jen Wilkin called practical polytheists. 
Our idolatry is a both-and arrangement. I need God and I need a spouse. I need God and I need a smaller waist size. I need God and I need good health. I need God and I need a well-padded bank account. This command means that we no longer have a both-and arrangement. It's just God above all. And everything else is dethroned. You remember we, we walked through the book of Colossians. I share with you that, that great statement by Curtis Vaughn where the Colossian heresy gave Jesus a place but not what? Supreme place. And you see, it's the tendency of the human heart to give God a place in our life but not supreme place. This command, what it means is that God is above all. Now, why was this command given? Well, quite simply because our hearts are restless and they wander. We sing about this, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We turn to functional gods thinking they will bring us joy and satisfaction, but they don't. Listen, functional gods never deliver on their promises. Functional gods tell you that if you bow at the altar, then you'll finally have joy, satisfaction, and meaning in life. And so we seek out power, wealth, health, Security, sex, fame, comfort, pleasure, thinking that they'll bring meaning, right? So we, we think if I just pour myself into my career and get the dream job, then I'll finally feel like I've got meaning in life. You get the new job and you feel the same as you did before. Or, or you say, well, I just had the, the romantic partner that I want in my life. I can just get that perfect person, right? My soulmate. Then I'll finally feel like I'm worth something. And you get the romantic partner and you feel like you're just still miserable. Just now you're miserable together, right? Or you say, man, if I could just get that body image I want, if I could just look in the mirror and be happy with what I see. And so you go to the work, you know, work out 10 times a week and you eat kale and stuff like that. And you look in the mirror and it's still like you're just not happy. It's, not, it's never enough. Why is that? Well, because you're looking for your fulfillment in a functional God and a functional God will always disappoint you. And in fact, functional gods will crush you. And God knows this, which is why he says, if you want to flourish, worship me above all else. God doesn't do that because he needs us, right? What did I say earlier? He's complete in and of himself. It's not because he needs us. It's not for his sake. It's for our sake. God knows that we will only have joy and satisfaction if we find it in him. Augustine said, our hearts are restless and they only rest when they find their rest in, in him. Only God satisfies and God knows that. God knows that if you give yourself to functional gods, they will hurt you. And that you'll only find meaning and satisfaction and joy in him because you were made for God. You were made by God. You were made for God. And you will only be satisfied when you find that in him. Soren Kierkegaard says that sin is building your identity on anything other than God. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child that goes on wanting to make mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Why does God give this command first? Because he knows 
that we're far too easily pleased with lesser things. So he calls us to find our joy and ultimate meaning in life in him and him alone. So how do we live it out? Okay, this is where we're going to lay in the plane today. How do we live this out? Well, John Calvin says there are four ways that we live out commandment number one. Through adoration, trust, invocation, that's an old word, and thanksgiving. Adoration, trust, invocation, and thanksgiving. Someone has taken those four words and formed them into questions that I think are very helpful. So let me just ask these questions as we close. Number one, who do you praise or regard as ultimate? That's adoration. Who do you praise or regard as ultimate? In other words, what do you love the most? That's adoration. Is it God? How about this? Whom do you count on? Whom do you count on? That's trust. If you want to know, sometimes it's hard to know exactly what we're counting on until it's taken away. And then you realize, well, I was counting on that way more than I thought. So we, we kind of assume I always have my health. Then you get sick. Your life is upside down and you realize, boy, I was really counting on, I was really trusting the fact that I'd have my health. Maybe it's your bank account. You just say, I, I was counting on financial security and then the market changed and I've lost everything. Now my life is collapsing because you realize, actually, I was counting on you. You were trusting not God, but your bank account. How about invocation? Invocation means who do you call on for help? When you're in a bind, who do you call on for help? When you're in a quandary in your life, when you don't know what to do, where do you turn for answers? Who do you invoke? Where do you look for answers? Where do you turn for purpose and joy? Is it food? Work? TV, phone, a romantic partner, or is it God? And then finally, whom do you thank? That's Thanksgiving. Whom do you thank? Where do you attribute your good days coming from? Do you thank God? So how do you live out the command, God above all? It means you, you love him and adore him more than anything else. You trust him more than anything else. You call on him for help more than anything else. You invoke him, and then you, you thank him. You realize everything good comes from God, and he's worthy of thanks. That's how you live it out. So this morning, I just want to simply invite you to dethrone anything in your life that has become a functional God for you. And all of us, every single day, have things that try to creep and crawl up onto that throne. It's our job to kick it off the throne. Amen? Paul's language. Put it to death. So anytime there's a functional God that tries to creep up into that place of ultimate worth and meaning in our life, it's our job to kick it off. Amen? Put it to death. Dethrone it. Peter Lightheart says about this first command that it, the first command creates a company of subversives who refuse to bow to the thousand and one idols of the age. I love that. The first commandment creates a company of subversives who refuse to bow to the thousand and one idols of the age. So I just invite you this morning to join the revolution. Amen? Embrace God's design. God above all.
you bow with me? If you, if you are not living this out, you'd say, Pastor, if I'm really honest, there have been some functional gods, some things that I have loved and sought after and served and found meaning in that I really shouldn't. Let me just... Let me speak to a couple of groups of people here today. Number one, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you've not made the decision to follow Jesus, then let this first command be a sign that points you to your need for Christ. He is the one who should occupy the throne of your life because he's the one who made you. He's the one who can redeem you. And so if you've never made the decision to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, I invite you to make that decision today. As soon as we are done with this service, I'll be out in the lobby with a number of other pastors and would love to talk with you about how to do that. You know, this command is deeply personal. God says, I am the Lord, your God, the God of you. Is he the God of you? If not, I invite you to make him the God of you today. If you're here today and you do know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you say, Pastor, I, I am a Christian, but... If I'm honest, I've let some things crawl up onto the throne. Well, then I invite you to let this command serve the function of refining. Let it refine you. It may be a means today for your repentance, for your holiness, for your sanctification. Maybe today is just a call before it's too late to dethrone something, to repent, to say, I want God to be on the throne and God above So maybe you just need to do business with God for a few moments. Lord, we we love you. We're thankful for your word, your law, your commands. They are good. We're We're thankful for Jesus who kept the law for us perfectly and who can deliver us from our lawlessness. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move in this place. Do your work in us. There's someone here today who needs to today make the decision to turn to Christ alone for salvation. I pray that they would make that decision. If there are others who need to dethrone something and turn in repentance toward holiness, Holy Spirit, you do that refining work in us, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.